The following sermon by our guest speaker is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Thank you, Aaron. Great singing. Wow. I keep telling you, you got to sit on the front row and hear that. It's such a joy to be involved with group of people who want to sing together and come out on a Friday night to study God's Word together. Uh, Do you believe in providence? Do you believe that God uniquely orders every event, every relationship in our lives to, to His glory and to our good and that there are no accidents even in when you wake up, when you go to bed, when you go to school, when you come home? I hope you believe that. Well, I had the privilege and joy of beginning the Master's Seminary back in 1988. Did you come in 90, um, Carrie? Yeah, it was my third year, and uh, my third year through, this, this, this guy showed up uh, at the seminary, and he had his wife with him, and they began um, leading music in chapel. In fact, in fact, Aaron, where are you? He left? Um, I'm sure he's out there, and he'll. There he is. He's 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 watching. In fact, I may put you guys on the spot for Sunday night because I know you can play and I know you can sing. And if I had a little urging, they might pull something off. Is there any urging in the building? Oh, that's done. Done. Okay. <laughs> okay. Anyway, there was this this couple who were leading um, music in our seminary chapels, and it was Carrie and Pam Hardy. And immediately, I was able to perceive um, just an unusual degree of authenticity and sincerity in the way that he led our chapels in worship and got to know Carrie Hardy then. And God's providence allowed us to be able to get to know each other in school, take classes together, and ultimately to work on staff at Grace Church together. Uh, Carrie is a graduate of the University of Houston with a degree in pharmacy. He uh, worked as a pharmacist, I think if you add the time with your ministry, better part of a quarter century, is that fair to say? And uh, uh, so even when he was at Grace Church, still kept up his pharmacy license, which allowed him to uh, be able to minister to people who uh, had very unbiblical views of some um, uh, drugs and how they could be able to change your behavior. And if there was a drug like that, man, would you take that? Wish there was a sanctification pill. Um, <laughs> I would market that. Uh, he's graduated from uh, Master's Seminary, and uh, Carrie, at one point, was my boss. He was the um, uh, executive pastor and uh, senior associate and uh, personal assistant to John MacArthur. I ended up taking his job uh, a few years after he left uh, and was probably one of the easiest guys I've ever worked with or for because I trusted him. Uh, right now, he teaches at the Shepherd's Theological Seminary on expository preaching and on theology, and on biblical counseling, and on marriage and the family. Uh, It might be noteworthy to some of you who uh, went to Italy with us or know about uh, our love for those guys who are ministering over there that Carrie and I served together on the Italian Theological Academy uh, board, and it's a joy to be able to to do that with him. He was uh, in Italy, for those of you who were there with us uh, back in April. He and his wife Pam got to know him a little bit better like that. Uh, his wife Pam is with him, and uh, ladies, you will get to know her a little bit more intimately tomorrow. Uh, they have four children, uh, one married, and uh, they are now in serving God in uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. 
where he is the pastor of Twin Cities Bible Twin City Bible Church. He's been a friend of mine for over 20 years. Hard to even say that. Over two decades. And he's one of the few guys, I've said this even in introducing him to you uh, in the last few weeks. Um, when I look at my life and would say, if I had a significant issue that, that I need counsel on and wisdom on, there's a very short list of men that I would call, and Kerry would probably be the first phone call I would make. He has just been a trusted uh, brother of mine over the years. And when it came time for us to decide who uh, would do our fall Bible conference, um, we were sitting around, Bob and Aaron and I, and saying, we, we, Carrie was here a year and a half ago or so, and we just began to get to know um, one another as a church and him, and just said it would be good to have him back. And if I say any more, then um, um, he's going to be nominated for a vacancy in the Trinity, so I won't do that. Um, there are no vacancies in the Trinity, by the way. Um, Carrie, thanks for giving us your time. Uh, I know it's not an easy thing to be away from church and away from your family, and um, just very grateful that we get to um, learn from you. Now, before he comes up, I do want to tell you this because he gets the mic last, and I don't trust him with the microphone. Um, uh, we were in New Zealand a few years ago, and we were on this ridiculous thing. It was basically a flatbed truck that they had bolted benches to. And it was a World War II, four-wheel drive, go anywhere. And these guys from New Zealand, there really are no liability laws in New Zealand. And uh, so they would go anywhere up and down these paddocks. And at one point, we went up and down, and Kerry um, had a rib, basically, a dislocated, dislodged. Something happened. It was bad. He couldn't breathe. I, I thought he had been eating something. So he is in torturous pain here. And I'm around him about to give him the Heimlich. <clears throat> He has not forgiven me for that yet. And all he, he couldn't breathe. All he could do is just say, oh, no. I would have probably dislocated three more ribs at that point. Are we still friends? I did take a, I did take a picture of him right there. Okay, hang on. Before anybody helps him, let me. It was uh, with friends like that. Who needs? Anyway, welcome Carrie Hardy to Mission Road Bible Church pulpit. I hadn't thought about that painful experience in a long time, so uh, dredged up a memory there. Thank you, Rick. Uh, yeah, we, uh, we were streaming down the side of this hill or whatever, and we went over a ledge or something, and it threw me up in the air, and when I came down and, and back onto the bench, it just separated all the cartilage from the, all my ribs on this side, you know, and so I, I didn't know what had happened. I, I just knew I was about to die, and so they ended up stopping, and I'm down on my hands and knees on the floor of this flatbed truck dying, and he, so he takes my camera and takes a picture of me while I'm dying uh, there, but... Uh, I appreciate all that, Rick. I, I, I really am so grateful just to have the opportunity to come back and be with you. I enjoyed my time here immensely uh, that year or so ago, year and a half ago, whenever it was. And I, I went home, uh, you know, certainly articulating to Pam. Well, uh, I sure hope, you know, sometime that you could go back there with me and, and see the ministry there. And so we're grateful that you've allowed that to happen. So we've really been looking forward to this uh, for a while now. And uh, I, I appreciate that Rick's been willing to continue a friendship and, and almost uh, resurrect it at some level because when you, when, you, when you leave working together like that at a place like Grace Community Church and you go out, wherever you are in ministry, I mean, you have a life there and, you, and, it, and you're busy, you know, and you're busy in the ministry and you're doing things. It's not that you don't care about 
uh, guys that you used to be with, but it's just hard, you know, to maybe keep those relationships going. And um, it's amazing how you can still consider yourself a good friend to somebody that you hardly ever see or talk to. So uh, I've really appreciated that, that Rick has been willing to uh, actually, uh, you know, want that relationship to continue to be something more than just that, you know, that we see each other once a year at the Shepherds Conference or something like that. And so it's been great to minister with him in Italy and to be here now twice. And uh, we, we cherish uh, their friendship uh, uh, Rick and Kim both, and we have a lot of good memories of uh, carpooling with their little boys uh, going to school every morning, uh, my kids and their kids, and they were all real little, and, and we'd all pile them in my van, and, and we, were, we were the trip in in the morning, and I think they were the trip home in the afternoon, you know, where we lived. So we've been uh, friends, family friends for a long, long time. What we're going to do this weekend is uh, somewhat of a Bible study, probably more tonight than the other sessions. Uh, they may become a little bit more expositional, but, but all related to the same uh, theme. But tonight definitely is to kick this off. It will be more of, a, of an exercise for you to uh, turn in your Bibles, uh, you know, look at the very, various verses that we're going to spend some time with and all that as we talk about a theme that's become very, very important to me. When it comes to the very cardinal and important doctrines of the Christian faith, I would say most believers are very familiar with all the facts that uh, surround the incarnation. We understand that event and we celebrate that at Christmas each year. We understand that Jesus was born through the agency of the Virgin Mary and, and all that. So we, we affirm all that. We understand that. In addition, Anyone who seriously considers themselves a Christian can recite much of the data related to the crucifixion of Christ on the cross. That's very important to us, and we, we know a lot about that. And as well, we would say that we take very seriously his resurrection from the dead, and we celebrate that once a year in a unique way, though we celebrated every Lord's Day in a sense. We understand the, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection. But once you move past that toward the ascension of Christ, sometimes thinking gets a little unclear for many people. And once you keep moving even further toward the idea after the ascension that Jesus is alive today and he's well today in heaven ministering on behalf of his people, well, sadly for many of us, it gets even a little more hazy in our thinking. I'm not saying that Christians don't believe that Christ is alive. We do believe that. We don't, however, many times seem to grasp, grasp some implications of that, some powerful implications of what I'm calling this weekend the present tense ministry of Jesus the present tense ministry of Jesus. So tonight, I'm beginning this little weekend study of that theme, the present tense ministry of Jesus, that will be definitely a meager attempt to capture at least some of the encouragement that we find in Scripture on this glorious topic, but I certainly trust that we can do that, that we can capture some of that and it'll impact our lives. In theological terms, or better, in terms of church history, I guess we should say, what we're talking about is the doctrine or the teaching of the session of Christ, it's called. The session 
of Christ. The doctrine of the session of Christ says that Christ now is seated. He is seated at the right hand of majesty on high, it says in one place, or at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. The verses associated with this doctrine present Christ then as one who was crucified, we understand that, crucified on a Roman cross, uh, one who was then resurrected from the dead after three days in the tomb, one who lived on the earth in a glorified body after that for a short period of time, and then one who ascended into heaven while some of his followers looked on. The doctrine of the session of Christ is that Christ is seated at the right hand of God after all of that. Now, since this follows the ascension, I want to spend just a moment with you tonight refreshing our memories on what the Bible does say about that, what sets the platform for this idea of the session of Christ or the present tense ministry of Christ. So if you want to, actually if you don't want to, do it anyway, turn to Acts chapter 1, 9 through 11. I don't know why we say things like that as pastors sometimes without thinking. You know, if you'd like to turn, no, just turn. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Of course you want to turn. Unless you have the entire Bible memorized. Maybe you do. Acts chapter 1, 9 through 11. This is the account of the final act of Christ when he was here ministering on earth. Let me just read these verses. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So here we have this scene. At the close of his earthly ministry, some of Jesus' followers, Jesus's followers, at least the 11 remaining apostles and very possibly a few others, on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives where his followers have just heard the final words that he's said here on earth, and that's verses 7 through 8. And then we find these words in verse 9 again. He was lifted up. That's a way of saying that Jesus was physically remove from the presence of his followers there, these apostles. It's actually a single verb in the Greek, and it just means that from the perspective of those on looking on, the disciples, from their perspective, Jesus began to rise from the ground. That's how they saw it. And note that it's stated in a voice that we call the passive voice. Jesus didn't rise. It says he was lifted or he was taken up, and that's implying something, that God the Father is the agent here who took Jesus back to heaven from whence he had come to earth. And he did this because the mission that God the Father had sent Jesus on to this earth was done. It says, while they were looking on then, a cloud received him out of their sight. By wording it that way, the author of Acts here, Luke, is saying that the issue is not that Jesus just kept going and going and going as if he he went into outer space. No, Luke is, is telling us something here with the mention of this cloud. 
that's signifying something more profound than he just kind of keeps going and gets smaller and smaller and we keep looking at him. What this is saying is that Jesus, right before their eyes, when this cloud enveloped him, Jesus slipped over into another dimension, into another sphere. And when the cloud then dissipated, Jesus had vanished. Now in the Old Testament, we we know something about this idea of a cloud. It was used to symbolize or signify something important to the people of God, the presence of God, what's known as the Shekinah glory of God. It was a cloud that led the way before the people as they, they traveled. We know about that. We know how the cloud was on Mount Sinai when Moses received the law. We know that a cloud hovered over the tabernacle in the wilderness and so forth. In the New Testament, we still see a reference to this same kind of cloud. We see it in Luke chapter 9, for instance, at the time of the transfiguration of Christ. Listen to what it says in Luke 9, verse 34. A cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Plus, just to jump ahead for a moment, Scripture says that when Jesus comes back again, the scene is going to once again involve a cloud. Revelation 1, verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. So whether going or coming again, God makes use of this this cloud here. Well, back to our scene here on the Mount of Olives. Jesus, as the ascended Lord, is enveloped by this cloud. This cloud, this Shekinah cloud, the visible manifestation of God's presence, the visible manifestation of his glory and even his approval of what's taking place here. What Luke intends to convey is that Jesus leaves then this sphere. He leaves this earthly sphere and he enters a sphere of now heavenly glory, the sphere from which he came when he condescended and came to earth. Verse 10, and as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, these angels spoke. In other words, some of them are are looking on as if they expect the cloud to dissipate and Jesus still be there. The the cloud will will go away, but Jesus will still remain with them. Or maybe it'll be like on the Mount of Transfiguration where the cloud then dissipates, but Jesus is still there. Maybe that's what they were thinking. Perhaps they thought they would get another glimpse of him then returning momentarily, any second returning, or maybe they're gazing just because they're awestruck by this sight. But whatever, as they were gazing intently into the sky, this cloud setting, some angels spoke to them in verse 11 and said, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Jesus is coming back again, and it's going to be visible like this. It's going to be a bodily return, just as they witness him leaving here. Well, this, like I said, is setting the platform for what we're talking about this weekend. The point for, this, for us this weekend is, okay, he disappeared from their myths. He ended his earthly ministry. He went back to heavenly glory into another sphere. But the question is then, why? What is he doing? 
What's he doing in the meantime between this leaving and someday his coming? And what are the implications for us as his people? Is this even important at all? Can we just push the pause button on Jesus and just say we know he's coming back again? Well, I'm starting with an assumption here that since Jesus defeated death by being raised to life, and since he finally departed earth, like we just read, in bodily form, it stands to reason then that he is somewhere and he's doing something from that point that we just read about onward until he comes again. To be even more specific, the fact that Scripture presents Jesus as having left the earth in bodily form to ascend to heaven and the fact that he is returning to earth in bodily form from heaven someday can only mean that Jesus is alive and well in heaven now in bodily form. And there, in that place, in that sphere, he is presently fulfilling part of the eternal plan of God. That plan included physical life for the Son here on earth. That plan included a physical death and a physical resurrection, and a physical departing, and a physical return. But that eternal plan of God as well includes the in-between state and ministry of Jesus. Now look at Acts chapter 2, verses 32 to 33. We find this comment on the present existence of Jesus in Peter's speech here, when Peter was explaining the unusual events that happened on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 32 through 33. Then Jesus, God, raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. They witnessed the resurrection. Jesus, in a, this glorified bodily form, still ministered for a few days, a period of time there after the resurrection, before the ascension. They witnessed all that. Verse 33, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So in explaining Pentecost, Peter is, is talking about the present tense state of Jesus. Right now, he is exalted to the right hand of God. In verse 34 of the same passage, we find Peter's understanding that this was all in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In particular, he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1, that says, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself, David himself, says, The Lord said to my Lord, in a sense, that's meaning God the Father says to God the Son, Sit at my right hand. God the Father invites in that sense the Son to sit at his right hand, and it goes on to even make promises to the Son. Let's talk about this, this present tense state of Jesus at the right hand of majesty on high. What does that mean? Well, the right hand imagery is how Scripture depicts something that is honored, something that is favored. It's the place of highest honor. In other words, at the right hand does not signify a location. It's not talking about something geographical, but we tend to think that way in our small, frail minds, that there's 
this place there that's over toward the right. And there's a chair. Okay, that's how we think of it. Don't think that way. It's not talking about a location. It's talking about a place of supreme exaltation. God, the Son, the second person of the Godhead, is presently in heaven, enthroned in the place of rule and authority. That's what right hand means. No longer the lowly Jesus who suffers. He's the ascended Jesus, and now a reigning Jesus, the exalted Jesus who rules. That's what Scripture means when it says he's in the place of the right hand. Now, the Apostle Paul also clearly states this specific truth in Romans 8, verse 34. So you can turn there as well. Romans 8, verse 34. Paul writes, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. That's where he is, in the place of exaltation and honor and rule, the right hand of God. Scripture further describes this position of rule by saying that Jesus is not only at the right hand, but we've seen the language then that he's seated. And that's where the word, the idea of session comes from in church history. We call this the session of Christ. It means the seating of Christ. It's an old noun that just means sitting down. That's what this old English noun session means, sitting down. Let me give you another verse in that regard, Ephesians 1, verse 20. Ephesians 1, verse 20. In this verse, Paul is commenting on this, and he says, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. I'm preaching through Hebrews on Sunday morning at our our church. I just, just started and uh, I love the book of Hebrews, and been wanting to preach through it for a long, long time. So we're in the first chapter, but uh, the author, the human author of the book, is unknown. It's a Holy Spirit-inspired author. That's all we need to know. And that author of Hebrews emphasizes the same truth in chapter 1, verse 3. We find there the session of Jesus, Hebrews 1, verse 3. When he had made purification of sins, that's referring to the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross that not only atoned for sin, the author here is going beyond that saying he he purges us from sin. There's a moral purifying that even takes place. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the present tense state of Jesus right now, right now he's in heaven. Right now, he's seated in the place of supreme rule and authority and honor, but just like we shouldn't get the wrong idea about the right hand, neither should we get the wrong idea about being seated. This is imagery. For many, the idea of sitting then conjures up not only a chair that's over there toward the right, but it conjures up the idea of inactivity. I mean, when you sit, you you stop doing things. You rest. But in the case of Jesus, the term seated in Scripture does not literally mean sitting down on something like a chair or on a throne. Instead, it's the idea that Jesus has 
completed something. And what he's completed is all his earthly responsibilities. All the earthly responsibilities in the eternal plan of God. Being born, coming to earth, living a holy life, obeying God's moral law perfectly, giving himself vicariously as a sacrifice on the cross, coming back to life again, ascending into heaven. It's all done now. That's what the term seated is conveying in Scripture. Right hand is conveying a concept. Seated is conveying a concept. And we find that affirmed by the writer of Hebrews later on in the book of Hebrews when he writes about the fact that there are no more atoning sacrifices for Jesus to make anymore. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. Hebrews 10, 12. Having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, that's it, one time, one sacrifice for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. You see, there's a connection between this idea of being seated at the right hand and having finished doing what God the Father sent him to do to make the atoning sacrifice for the purification of sins. Once for all time, Hebrews 10, 12. All right, so where are we then? When the present tense ministry of Jesus that was inaugurated through the ascension leaving this sphere and entering another sphere as this cloud enveloped him, being at the, in the place, the position of honor and rule and authority, seated in the sense that his earthly ministry is all done, we need to understand he is still very, very active. He is moving in that sense. He is acting. He is working. He is ministering. Seated in the sense that his earthly responsibilities are completed, so he's settled. He's settled into his pleasant role, ministering, but he's not just doing nothing. Now, this is a significant and wonderful truth to settle in our own hearts. And it captivated me about a year ago as I began to think and study and read and ponder all that this means for our lives. This is an incredible, wonderful truth to settle in our hearts. The cross work of Christ was a once-for-all actual historical event that took place about 2,000 years ago, you know, in Jerusalem. And that sacrifice forever satisfied something. It forever satisfied the wrath of God, the just wrath of God for the sins of his people. But though our sins are eternally paid for, though that need was met, we still have many needs. We have many spiritual needs that continue until the time when he does return and we are with him in eternity, worshiping him forever. And it is those ongoing needs that the active ministering Jesus is meeting from his settled position of preeminence and rule and authority in this place of honor called the right hand of God. Now this teaching on the session of Christ has been a doctrine affirmed throughout the course of church history as the church has progressed through the centuries. You can find it in catechisms like the famous 
uh, Heidelberg Catechism, a question and answer kind of format. John Calvin, the great reformer, had a strong desire that uh, children would learn biblical truths and that they would remember biblical truths. So he in order to help that process, he developed a catechism known as the Geneva Catechism. And there are questions and, and then answers that, that the children learn, answers to many of the great doctrines related to Christ and questions related to that, including this one, the doctrine of the session. For example, Calvin poses this question in his catechism. Question, in what sense... Do you say that he sitteth on the right hand of the Father? And then the child learns this answer. Quote, these words mean that the Father bestowed upon him the dominion of heaven and earth so that he governs all things. Charles Hodge describes Christ's session as the third step in the exaltation of the Lord. And by that he means that at the transfiguration you saw this exaltation of the glory of Christ You see it in the resurrection as well. You get a glimpse into Jesus' true identity there. And as well, it's true about this. So does the reality of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God give us a glimpse into his true identity. Now, my purpose in teaching on this, the session of Christ, is that we would be encouraged by it. We would be exhorted by what I see are the implications of all this for our lives, the implications for life that flow from this reality, the session of Christ. This is doctrine. It's theology. But what's the purpose of doctrine and theology? It's to impact the way we live. And all doctrine is practical for that. We don't have to make any theology practical. We don't have to make any doctrine relevant for our lives. It just inherently is. In fact, any practical material you ever learn or ever receive and teaching that's practical, it must be doctrinally based and theologically based if it's going to have any true value to you and help anyone. Perhaps it's better to think in terms of how I can make myself relevant to Scripture and relevant to the doctrine and theology that's there as opposed to finding ways to try to make the doctrine relevant to me. We have that backwards. But in any case, I want to spend some time this weekend connecting a few dots here by stating some of the implications for the individual Christian of the present tense ministry of Jesus. Now, when it comes to this biblical teaching that Christ is right at the right hand of God, there are more applications, I believe, for our lives than I could discuss in a short series. But I've selected four of them. So here's the four we're going to look at starting tonight. The knowledge that Christ is seated at the right hand of God on high, first of all, provokes a pilgrim mindset. And we're going to talk about that. There's one implication I think is important. Second, it prompts a sense of assurance of salvation due to our eternal security. We'll talk about that. Third, it provides help in times of trial and temptation. We'll see that Sunday morning. And lastly, it produces a confidence and a hope concerning the future. And we'll see that Sunday night. So tonight, first two implications. All of that was my introduction. First two implications of the session of Christ, that the fact that Christ ascended 
and is seated at the right hand of majesty on high, ministering on us, to us, in us, through us, for us today. If we really grasp that, I believe this is one implication. Number one, it provokes a pilgrim mindset. A pilgrim mindset. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm going to tell you. Living for Christ, living for the Lord, serving the Lord, following the Lord is not an event. It is a journey. It's a humbling journey, but it's a very exciting walk of faith, we call it, on a path. It's a walk of faith on a path that God has sovereignly ordained for each of his children. Now, we know something about God's will in this. We like to look at God's will from two different perspectives. We, we know what his moral will is for us as we walk on this path in this earthly existence that we call our earthly lives. We know his moral will. That's the teaching that's found in Scripture. But God has a sovereign will, a, a decretive will, a sovereign will for each one of us. How do we know what that is? The things that are going to happen on this path that we call life. Well, in this walk of faith, we discover that only one way. We discover it one step at a time as he unfolds his eternal decrees moment by moment in time. And this means that God is sovereignly orchestrating all things toward a purpose he has determined. Now we know something about that purpose, that he does all things to glorify himself, and when it comes to our lives, he glorifies himself by using all things to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ, to conform us to the image of his son. He's doing that now in the present tense. And he's going to certainly do it when we are glorified in the future and we spend eternity with him. But now, for now, in the in-between time of our life here on earth, the Bible presents us then as walking on this walk of path, this path of faith, walking on that path, following Christ, serving him, growing in him, becoming more like him. And there's a way the Bible presents that. It presents us then as pilgrims who are living temporarily in this world. Pilgrims. Now what's the connection between the doctrine of Christ's present exaltation in heaven and how we're to live as pilgrims in this world? Well, I think the fact that the Lord is seated at the right hand of God ministering on our behalf and doing something that he's not dead, he's not just away somewhere, that he's active and alive, ministering for us and in us and through us, that can be a constant reminder that that is our true home and this is not. Where he is is our home, our real home, and this is something temporary. And this truth acts as a magnet for me. It's like a magnet that draws my thoughts heavenward instead of earthward. That's a pilgrim mindset. And that is exactly what Paul is exhorting Christians of all ages to do in Colossians 3 verse 1. These are familiar words for us. While we're on this walk of faith, on this path that God has decreed for us, in this earthly existence, 
as pilgrims in this world, Colossians 3, 1 says to us, keep doing something. Keep seeking the things above. Where what? Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That verse is telling us the doctrine of the session of Christ is to have an impact on how we live right now. We are to have our minds focused on the things there. Verse 2 goes on to say that of Colossians 3. That it's accomplished, this seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God is accomplished as we set our minds on the things above, not on the things of the earth. Now, that's something we struggle with. We're weak and we're frail because this is what we see. The the news that we read is the news here. The headlines that we pay attention to are the headlines that have to do with this earthly existence. But I like what one author, Garrett Dawson, wrote. We do not expect this world to be our home, for our home is with Christ in heaven. We do not demand to win everything here because the victory celebration awaits us there. Ponder that for a moment. As pilgrims in this world, we're not to expect or demand to win everything here. There's a victory celebration prepared that is awaiting us there. Now that fits in with something else Paul has written in Philippians 3 verses 20 and 21. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, for our citizenship is in heaven. There's our country. There's our real home, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's where he is, seated at the right hand of majesty on high. And he will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity, into conformity with the body of his glory. So again, our citizenship is there. We are pilgrims passing through temporarily this world. And that agrees with Peter's comments and his heaven-bound thinking as well in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. He's writing there to encourage some suffering saints. And in 1 Peter 1, 1, he, he says he's writing to saints spread all through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and all those places But he reminds his readers, the true believers, what he calls the chosen ones, that they have obtained, and listen to what he says in 1 Peter 1.4, they have obtained an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled that will not fade away, where? Reserved in heaven. You see how many ways the Bible goes at this thing of how we're to think about our lives on this earth? A perspective that we're to live with? We have an inheritance that's waiting for us there because that's our true home, that's our true country, our citizenship is there. We're to set our minds on the things that are there because there is where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, not in a chair, not over on the right corner of the room or stage. He's in the place of exaltation and honor and rule, but because his earthly work is completed, now he's doing his heavenly ministry that we'll see more about this weekend. It's a pilgrim mindset, and it's not just articulated by a handful of passages in the New Testament. 
I mean, it's a summary perspective of the entire Bible when it comes to how God's people ought to live in this world. A lot of the the teaching in the Old Testament that God gave to the nation of Israel was for a purpose of helping them understand that they were sojourners. They were a nation that was different than the rest of the world, different from the nations that were around them. I'm teaching through Hosea on Wednesday nights, and it's becoming, with each chapter, even more painfully clear how the nation of Israel had lost sight of that, how they mingled with the nations, and how they chose political leaders the way everybody else chose them, and how they even came to a point, it says in Hosea chapter 8, that they even thought the moral law of God, the truth, was strange. That's how far they had strayed. But what was God's intent with all his law and his teaching and his relationship with them, his covenant, that they were to be a peculiar nation different from everybody else, set apart for his purposes? Why? Well, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, gives us the reason. Because they are strangers and exiles on the earth. That's always been true about God's people. We're strangers. We're exiles from our real home. We are pilgrims just passing through this earthly existence. Thinking about all the time Christ at the right hand of God on high. So heaven, where Christ is, is our true home. This world is temporary. Now this pilgrim attitude is a crucial attitude really to maintain when we're faced with certain things. For example, when we're faced with decisions that we have to make. We, we sometimes have to make decisions in this world that are even more significant than other decisions. I mean, it's one thing to try to decide whether you're going to wear black socks or brown socks that day. I don't know how much you belabor that decision. Don't, don't waste too much time on it, you know, just pick one. But I understand that you start talking about other categories of our lives and decisions get, get very sobering and the, the consequences concern us and we, we labor over them, we seek counsel and so forth. In the midst of all that, which is wise to do, take those decisions seriously and make the wisest decision you can. In the midst of all that, I think this doctrine can bring rest to your soul. In this earthly temporary life, growing to be more like Jesus, who's in heaven, our Savior, the one who's preeminent, growing to be more like him is ultimately more important than choosing where I live and where I don't live. It's more important than what job I take and what job I don't take. It's more important than what car I buy and what car I don't buy and so forth. If Christians embrace the fact that they are pilgrims with a destiny and that their lives are being lived on a completely different plane, should be anyway, many of the problems we face even can be more easily resolved. I mean, we do face problems in this world. We not only have to make serious decisions, we face serious issues and serious setbacks and problems and threats and so forth. But the bottom line is, if you get back and see it all objectively, it all only has to do with this world. It's something temporary. If I think about heaven, and I keep my heart and my mind set on Christ and where he is, as the ruling, reigning 
one. It helps me more easily resolve the serious problems of life. Because when we set our minds on establishing a, a life pattern on heaven, many of the earthly issues just become irrelevant by comparison. And that's the point, by comparison. This pilgrim mindset means we're living with a perspective then that's forward-looking. We're going somewhere. We're expecting something, and it's in the future. And it's all because we don't belong to this age. We are called, in 1 Peter 2, verse 11, we are called aliens and strangers in this world. We take marching orders from another world. And that's one of the primary reasons why this world finds Christians so difficult to understand. They should find it difficult to understand our worldview because it's different from this world. We're to live with a pilgrim mindset. A pilgrim mindset also includes the understanding that we're here to function then as Christ ambassadors. He's there in that country. We represent him on this walk of faith, on this path, as pilgrims in this world. We represent him in this world to the ones who are not like us. They are of this world. This is their age. It's not ours. This is their country in that sense. So 2 Corinthians 5.20, when I say country, I just mean this planet. 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us. So we beg you on behalf of Christ, who's where? Seated at the right hand of God. We remember that. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Or as Everett Harrison puts it, quote, we are in the world for witness, but not for conformity to that which is a passing phenomenon. Everything here is temporary. I've heard the expression, and maybe you've heard the expression, that you can be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. Not so sure about that. According to some of these verses, the opposite's true. The more heavenly-minded we are, ultimately, the more earthly good we can be. If we set our minds on heaven, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, we're going to live then more strategically for something, more strategically for God's glory, seeking to impact the world for the gospel with whatever time we do have left as pilgrims. There's one implication. The second one is this. I've come to understand that this doctrine, number two, prompts assurance of salvation due to our eternal security. This doctrine prompts assurance of salvation due to our eternal security. Now, while we live as pilgrims in this temporary earthly existence, it's sadly true that many times, many Christians struggle with this idea of having assurance of their salvation and being eternally secure. But the truth about Christ's present tense ministry on our behalf, can help a Christian in times of doubt like that. Now, there are a lot of verses that give insight into the reality of, of assurance, but I just want to pull out a couple 
for you. One is Romans chapter 8, verses 31, and then 33 and 34. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who is against us? Verse 33 then. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. This is a great chapter on assurance of salvation, a great section there in Romans 8 about the love of Christ that we'll never be separated from if we belong to him. But in the midst of all that, verse 34 is interjected this doctrine of the session of Christ. He's at the right hand of God. And he's doing something there. He's interceding for us. What a thought. The eternal second person of the Godhead is at this moment in his present tense ministry at the right hand of God interceding for his people. But I want to add more clarity to it. So turn to another comforting thought in this little progression, progression of thought here, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. If you're having trouble finding it, it's right before 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. It's right before that. Here the apostle John is writing, and he says this. 1 John 2, verse 1. If anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Not a dead Jesus, a Jesus who is ascended and seated at the right hand of God right now. Keep that thought in mind. Just a comment quickly on this idea of him being an advocate. It is this idea of a lawyer. We understand that maybe a little better, but it's, it's a lawyer. Um, but, but this is a very encouraging idea for someone struggling with assurance, I think. Just don't get the wrong picture in your mind. It's not saying it's the kind of lawyer that's standing before God the judge at a bar and, and Christ is having to continually argue against this mean, unloving judge who really does want to condemn everybody every time they fail or hit us with a big stick. It's not that picture of Christ continually trying to plead with that judge and many think of God the Father that way, that he's an angry God. And Jesus is somehow keeping him from punishing us. I'm not saying God is not a holy God, and he does deserve fear and reverence on our part. He is a God of perfect justice and wrath. He is a God who punishes the wicked eternally. They don't humble themselves and repent of their sin. But we're talking about believers here. That's not the case for Christians. So we do need to rid ourselves of that kind of conception of this heavenly court scene, of Christ continually pleading in that sense, or continually offering his blood over and over and over and trying to convince God the Father of something in hopes of keeping God from doing something to us. It's not that. If for another reason, it's not that, because God and the Father is the one who delivered up the Son to pay the debt of our sin. The Father is not reluctant to continue to be gracious to us. He's not reluctant to do that. He loves to do that. So this lawyer, this advocate, is, is not like that. He's not like lawyers in a legal system today who have to manipulate the drug, the, the jug, jug. Let me get all that over. Manipulate the judge or a jury. 
somehow. He doesn't have to do that. He's not a lawyer who has to lie. He's not a lawyer who has to fabricate evidence in some way. He's not even presenting, I like the way one author put it, he's not presenting his clients as being better than they actually are. I mean, that goes on a lot today, you know. (laughs) They really are slimy in some ways, but we're going to make this person, this client appear as good as possible. He's not having to do that. It's not like that. This lawyer is a friend, a friend of the client and one who knows the judge. He's not having to make a plea in that sense. Here's the point I really believe about 1 John 2. Just the fact that he's present. The divine advocate is present moment after moment in this place of exaltation called the right hand of God. His very presence there as the one who made purification of sins, the one who died for sinners and rose again, that in itself is an intercession on our behalf. The fact that the ruling, reigning Lord, the victorious Lord is there. The very fact that he's there and he already once for all accomplished the forgiveness for the sins of his people, that is an ever-present and eternal guarantee of our security and our salvation. Now, we use this term propitiation sometimes, and it's, we find it in Scripture. It's this idea of God's wrath being completely satisfied already in, in Christ, in his death on the cross. But I thought about this in a more conversational kind of way, and, and, and what I'm about to say is totally unreal. It's strictly human terms. It's not Jesus as a lawyer standing before the mean judge and trying to make us look better than we are. If we're going to create something and fabricate something that's not actually real, at least fabricate it more this way. One of, one of us sins, and we sin a lot. Instead of denying the sin... Here's what the lawyer says. Oh, he's definitely a sinner. Very much a sinner. He does heinous things. She does heinous things sometimes. In fact, this person can do far worse than this. But it doesn't matter. I paid for it. His very presence says it's paid for. The thought, the act, And the divine judge is pleased to see eternally the righteousness of Christ instead of the unrighteous deeds of the sinners. So the point is that Christ's propitiation is not something that's just past tense. In other words, Christ is at the right hand of God, present tense. And there is this present tense aspect of his sacrifice on our behalf because he has a continued presence there. Not offering sacrifices... There's one and only one final sacrifice on the cross that was sufficient and effective. Our sins, past, present, and future, they're all eternally forgiven. All your sins, past, present, and future, are eternally forgiven. But his presence there is a continual statement of his propitiatory sacrifice. Now, remembering this and believing this does fill my heart with joy and it encourages me at the moments of temptation. It's a great source of comfort in my times of struggle and failure. Sin does not cancel out salvation because of where Christ is and who he is. But I want to press on a little bit more. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. 
Here's even more so why it fosters a sense of security in my relationship with him. It's not just that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Ephesians 2, 6, and 7. God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So as pilgrims in this world, I fail sometimes. I sin against God. I disobey him. God doesn't hit me with a big stick in anger. He took all this punishment out, his anger out on Christ. He lovingly disciplines me and corrects me because he loves me. But it's forgiven. It's past, present, and future forgiven. It's eternally forgiven already in Christ. And Christ's presence, the right hand of God, is a continual statement to that reality. But even beyond that, this verse brings up another important perspective on this when it comes to eternal security and assurance of salvation is that my address as well is there. See, I am in him, and therefore I am seated with him there at the same place. So I'm not just a pilgrim in this world. I am here in this world as a pilgrim. But at the same time, I'm there in heaven with Christ as well. Notice that phrase again in Ephesians 2. We are seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And there's a profound implication of that fact for us when it comes to eternal security. If we press on it a little more, which I'll do. Now turn to Colossians 3 again. Colossians 3, now verses 3 and 4. We looked at verses 1 and 2, 3 and 4. Incorporate this now into this progression of thought about security. My sins, past, present, and future are paid for. Nothing can affect my relationship with God. And the very presence of Christ in heaven as the the one who finished all that needed to be done, is a continual statement to that fact. In addition, I'm in him. I'm seated there with him. But there's even more to it. Colossians 3, 3, and 4. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That phrase... Our life is hidden with Christ in God. That ought to grab our attention there. It ought to make us say some form of, whoa. Especially when we talk about eternal security. This term hidden is being used metaphorically here to convey the idea of concealment. So the idea of being hidden with him, in him, is a tremendous statement of security. We ultimately cannot be touched in a way that would ever rob us of our spiritual life. We can be touched as pilgrims in a temporal way. We can be tempted. We can be harassed, if you will. But we cannot be destroyed, and our relationship as one of his children cannot be changed. We cannot be destroyed by any form of danger, any conflict, any temptation, any demon. Nothing. And just so you'll know, that tense of hidden is important. It's that perfect tense. It's done, it's completed, and it has ongoing results forever. In other words, our lives are hidden with Christ now at the right hand of God. 
and they will forever remain that way, hidden in, with Christ in God. That's a statement of security. It's a statement of intimacy, but it's a staggering thought that it's in God. Sins paid for, seated with Christ, concealed in Christ, and Christ is in God. It goes deeper. We know from Scripture that the Father and the Son are one in essence, and that Christ is in the Father, and the Father is in the Son, but now we see another version of what Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians that he says that we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. So just think how all that fits together. We belong to him and he belongs to God. We're in him. He's hidden in God, the Godhead. Christ the Son is in union with God the Father in the depths of the Trinitarian God. That's the realm in which he exists. What Scripture is saying here is the Son is secure. And our life is hidden in Him. And since the Son is hidden in God and we are hidden in the Son, we are also hidden in God. We exist in the very depths of the Godhead in that sense. We are completely secure, just like Christ. And I've come to conclude this about these thoughts. This truth is too profound ultimately, to comprehend. It's just too profound. But it is something to rest in. It's something to rejoice in. The fact that Christ is at the right hand of God. If I struggle with my eternal security, I really don't understand all that really God has done in Christ for me. And what it means to be in him. And I visit these doctrines. And it encourages me. So what have we done tonight? We're acknowledging something about Christ. We're acknowledging that he came to earth. And he lived. And he died. And he was resurrected. But we're acknowledging that he ascended. He left this earth. Because his earthly ministry has been completed. But when he returned to heaven from whence he came... He didn't do so just to go on vacation. He didn't do so just to take a rest now and be inactive until the next thing happens, which so far has been a long time. He's carrying on present tense activity and ministry, and there are implications for our lives. And first on the list, then, is that one tonight. The mindset we maintain since Jesus is in heaven I need to live my life now, remembering that heaven is my ultimate destination. And I'm going to live there eternally, in reality, not just in position, but in reality, in my real home. So everything that takes place here, all the earthly trials, all the earthly struggles, all the disappointments, as well as all the successes and the moments of, of promotion and all that, that as well, I say the same thing, it's all temporary. It's all temporary. I'm just a pilgrim passing through this world, forward thinking on my way to where Jesus is. That's the first implication. It impacts my way of thinking as I live here. And second, as I live here, 
I can learn to rest and rejoice in the security that is mine. It's not something to hide behind and say, well, therefore I can do whatever I want. Scripture teaches against that because this impacts my desires. It creates desires to want to be like Christ and to live lives that are in correspondence to who he is and where he is. But nevertheless, it's something to rest in. I am eternally secure in Christ. There is no such thing as losing my place of being hidden with Christ in God. There is no idea of that in Scripture. So I can have this confidence that he keeps me on my pilgrim pathway. He keeps me all the way to the end in spite of the fact that on this pathway I stumble many, many times. But he preserves me and he makes me stand up and he gives me the strength to keep going because it's part of the way he gets me to that eternal home. In those failures and struggles, we certainly face the temptation to sin. We need his strength We need his help in those moments. And Christ at the right hand of God is doing something in that regard on our behalf as well. We're going to look at that in the Sunday morning service. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for doctrine and theology. We thank you that you've given us truth. That you have not left us on our own to think our own thoughts, but you've given us guidance. You've given us your word. Incredible truth to teach us about you and to teach us about ourselves. We thank you that that doctrine, that theology, when it's properly understood, encourages us and strengthens us and helps us. We thank you how it reorients us. Lord, we confess that we start thinking in human terms only and we easily start thinking the way that the world thinks. We mingle with those who are of this age every day. And we're so easily influenced by their view, their worldview. So Father, thank you for your world, your word that shocks us sometimes, your word that challenges us, your word that causes us to think so that we're reoriented to think your thoughts after you instead of our own thoughts. And I pray as we have begun this little series tonight and as we continue talking about some very practical things for our lives and what it means for us. I pray, Lord, that we would not forget these overarching principles here that we've looked at tonight of who we are in Christ and all that you've accomplished for us. And I do pray that the thinking about heaven and the setting of our minds and hearts on the things above, that it would make a difference in who we are as pilgrims in this world. And I pray that others would around us would see that difference and and know that we think differently and therefore we live differently. And I pray that you would give us great opportunities then to be your ambassadors, to reach out to the people of this age who are caught in the trap of this world, who cannot set their mind on things above because they don't know the one who's seated there. Give us that opportunity of conveying to them the wonderful good news that those who put their trust in Christ alone Those who turn from trusting in self and living their own lives and disobeying your law in so many ways, those who turn from that, repent of that, and turn to Christ to follow him as the Lord and Savior of their lives, Lord, I pray as we give that message out that people would hear that and that you would open their hearts to believe it, that they might find the joy that comes from being pilgrims in this world headed for a heavenly home 
knowing the Savior who's there. In his name we pray, amen. Well, thank you, Kiri. That was a really fast-paced, high-altitude approach. I would have loved to have had that spread over some extended time, but great data. I don't know what you're walking away with, but that sentence um, is too, proud, too, too profound to comprehend, but not too profound to rest in. Now, what a great thought. It's beyond our ability to process, but not beyond our ability to apply well, thank you, Kerry. Tomorrow morning, we're going to gather back as men, and he's already given me a hint of what he's going to be speaking on to the men. Uh, biblical masculinity. What does it mean to be a, a man, a masculine man before God, biblically? We'll uh, have some breakfast together at 8, and then uh, join uh, each other here, and then uh, we'll go home and take care of the kids, and the ladies will be back at 2 o'clock uh, sharp right here in this room. So is that right? 2 o'clock? Great. Well, everyone stand, and I'll dismiss this in prayer, and uh, rumor has it that there may be a few snacks left. Is that right, Ginger? So eat something before you leave, please. Um, Let's pray together. Father, we have heard a lot of verses, a lot of theology, great truth, and all of it points to the wonderful reality that we have a living, risen Savior who is at this very moment, ministering to us on behalf of you, and ever pleads his wounds over our sin to you, to your glory, and in a mystery to your great delight. So dismiss us with that great thought that this is too, comp- too, too rich, too deep, too awesome to comprehend, and yet it's simple enough to rest in. Cause us to rest in the fact that Jesus is ministering to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Men, see you back at 8 in the morning. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.